You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation podcast network. Hosted by Blake Murphy 7, all about your Arizona Cardinals. Hello, welcome in. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Uh, we are in week number nine officially. The Arizona Cardinals start off the season with a 7-1 and record following a loss to the Green Bay Packers on a last second play. Uh, Kyler Murray tossing the ball to A.J. Green uh, goes into the hands of Rasul Douglas after a miscommunication. Uh, we'll go over some more of the game a bit later in the week, as well as do an in-depth preview of the Niners game. But for now, today, it's a draft episode. A lot of people are wondering, why would we do a draft episode when the Cardinals are 7-1? and one? Uh, Which is obviously something that... Uh, you know, not many fans are talking about. Arizona is in the thick of it. But usually around this time every year, whenever uh, I had old Johnny Venerable on the podcast with me, we kind of would take the bye week and the mini bye week to talk a bit about uh, the overall NFL draft, some of the needs that teams had, some of the best players stand out, kind of do a little bit of a uh, around the college football area, get people prepped for the upcoming draft weekend and kind of take a look at what some of the needs of the Cardinals have been. Obviously, in years past, there's been a lot more needs than there has been for a 7-1 and team, but there still is quite a few areas that they could upgrade. And so to do that, wanted to bring in an expert from the Draft Breakdown podcast. It's Justin Higdon, also known as AFC to NFC on Twitter. He is one of the people I respect when it comes to both draft analysis and uh, he's also a uh, co-host with our site uh, manager Seth Cox so uh, poor Justin dragging him in after he spends you know half the week it seems like talking to one Cardinals fan now jumping on to talk to another but <laughs> wanted to at least check and see how you're doing tonight Justin I'm good Blake it's uh, been a long time man uh, I remember talking to you back on the old draft breakdown podcast and then we went on a three-year hiatus and and uh, kind of revived the show back last March prior to the 2021 draft and now this is going to be our first full draft cycle, so it's been exciting. Uh, you know, it's a lot to keep up with. I, I, I guess I kind of forgot how much it was, but uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let's go ahead and we can just shift into before we get talking about just some of the. A draft or other places. Um, Cardinals are coming off of their first loss of the season. Normally you're used to seeing and hearing that within the first couple weeks, and this is a unique year where it took all the way up until uh, week eight before that happened. Uh, you can talk a little bit about what we saw with the Cardinals-Packers game, um, just from kind of your perspective, from what portions of the game you watched at least, just kind of some of the takeaways is I know there's a lot of people have mixed opinions on you know how good Arizona is and losing a nationally televised game off of a last second play may help or hurt with some of those expectations. Yeah, you know, um, one of the topics that Seth and I talked about on our Patreon show um, a week or so ago was about the uh, kind of the strategy of drafting group of five players. And so one of the names that came up in our discussion was Zayvon Collins. And we talked about how he had had a limited snap count coming into that game. And then it turns out he plays a very limited snap count because he gets hurt in that Packers game. So that kind of, that was one thing that, that struck me, you know, we talk about uh, Seth and I both very much liked Zayvon Collins as, as a draft prospect, but you wonder in retrospect and, and as we go forward in our draft evaluations, 
how much you want to value those group of five guys, even guys like Collins who look the part of, you know, the power five guys, but they don't, they're not facing that power five level of competition week in and week out and how that kind of affects them going forward. I think it, it expands the learning curve. So we saw Collins already was kind of limited with his snap count throughout the season coming in. And then unfortunately he gets injured. So that was one of my takeaways. Another one was uh, Zach Allen coming off the COVID injury list. And uh, I, I kept asking Seth, is he really sick or is he, is it just a matter of not testing, you know, negatively? And he it turns out he was sick, but he recovered and he recovered quite well. And I thought he played very well against green Bay the other night. He had uh, one sack. And so he's had sacks in back-to-back games. He's making a lot of plays mm-hmm. at and behind the line of scrimmage. So Zach Allen looks like he was a 2029 20, third rounder, I think. And he's, Look, yep, yeah, gonna... yeah, and he looks like he's a, a solid contributor. You know, he, it's it's pretty rare these days that you see defensive ends and defensive linemen playing around seventy percent of the snaps, and that's what Zach Allen's doing. And coming off COVID and still being able to handle that workload, I thought that was important. Uh, one thing you and I talked about before the show was the running back situation, and it's working out. They've got. Chase Edmonds, they've got James Conner, but I wonder how much better this offense, how much more dynamic this offense would look if they invested in the running back position in an earlier round, maybe on in, in the early part of day two. So really those were my takeaways, but Arizona's had a great year, and uh, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, for those of you that don't know, and of course Arizona beat my Cleveland Browns. My, my Browns are... are kind of at a crossroads right now, but uh, they were considered, you know, contenders in the AFC Arizona handled them easily, I would say. And, you know, it it really all comes down to Kyler Murray. And that was a guy that I think in, you know, at the time coming out, him being five, nine and change, that's something that I wasn't adjusting to as an evaluator, but now it's something that I'm very tuned to the height, maybe isn't such the difference as the dynamic athleticism, the mobility and the arm strength. And when you've got that and, and you've got, you know, like Kyler does a knack for being able to find guys downfield after he extends the play, as well as giving you that threat to run. I think that's really what Cardinals fans are, are getting. It's a, it's a treat and it really makes uh, them look smart for bailing on Rosen and taking Kyler number one overall that year. Yeah, I know that's one of the things we can talk about as far as draft decisions when it comes to, you know, taking a quarterback or taking a, a pass rusher who's rated higher. It seems like it's almost at this point every other year we get one of those types of scenarios. Um, I do think it's interesting when you look at Arizona, you talk about their offense and their run game, and Arizona's got like, they've got five, at, I think maybe you could probably say seven of their guys starting on their offense who are all in the last year of their deal. So you got. Green and Kirk, Green obviously being kind of their more marquee addition, at least up until the, you know, missing the audible for a back shoulder fade, which is, you know, that's kind of where a lot of the memes popped up throughout this week, which is what happens when you make a big mistake in a national game. Uh, Edmonds and Connor both are on those one year deals. And then you got, you know, at least two offensive linemen. Um, So it's going to be interesting as far as how they allocate, because like, I think, you know, we've talked about where you draft players and have threats and one thing I know at least about with 
that I can disagree with Seth, my co-host, is I feel like he can be higher on running backs as far as where he'd take or draft them than I would be. But I do kind of agree when you look at some of the areas and teams when you do land one of those type of rushing threats, suddenly it does seem like there's times where it can complete or help compensate for uh, for an offense. So it'll, it'll be something at least to watch. And um, I did want to at least mention before we kind of jump into some of that draft area as far as the game with the injuries and Allen, uh, he's kind of just struggled to stay on the field the past few years. And when he has, there's been a game or two that he will kind of go off, whether it's you know, getting a sack or batting down a pass. Um, Arizona's used him a bit like the this mini version of J.J. Watt. And what I thought was interesting as far as when it comes to draft evaluation and usage, um, the guy that I look at as far as for maybe not a good fit for one team but is a fantastic fit for another is how J.O.K. has been playing. Uh, Jeremiah Owosu-Kuromoa for the Browns as um, he's a guy that really flashed off the tapes watching him against in that Browns game of how you know, when Arizona was coming out the uh, of the gate, there was some struggles that they had essentially. And, you know, they went up pretty quick on the first two drives. But after that, it was like they just couldn't run the ball after that Chase Edmonds. I think it was like he got free at least for some like a 40-yard scamper. But it was interesting because JOK, the way that he's been used in Cleveland, it's very much like the way that I think Arizona wanted to use Hassan Reddick and never did. <laughs> or if they did, they realized like, a bit too late that he was much more of an edge rusher so I thought that was kind of interesting as far as looking at you know the way that one team may view a guy who you know fell to the second round and suddenly he ends up you know getting on the play playing more snaps than the likes of Zayvon Collins who's more of a traditional Mike and I think JOK is a guy who is anything but traditional but you can kind of see the rookie uh, being able to make plays in Cleveland which has been obviously super helpful for the Browns despite all the injuries. Yeah, I, I was skeptical of him as a prospect and it, in terms of a first-round prospect because he's one of those uh, kind of overhang defender types where you have to move him around and let him – Yeah, you have to let him blitz or, or get into certain coverages where he's not a true safety, he's not a true linebacker. But Cleveland was doing a good job of, of – uh, first of all, they, they lucked into getting him – at around pick 52, I think. And then uh, they had a role in mind for him. And I think that's what you need for a player like that. Um, my problem has always been like, a, say, like a Miles Jack, where people were saying he was the best pl- prospect in the entire draft in a, in a draft at that time that had uh, Joey Bosa in the, in the draft. I don't think you want to put these these overhang defenders, these guys that move around and play kind of a linebacker hybrid defensive back role up, you know, to value them that high, because I don't think they're valuable to every team. But like you said, Blake, uh, Cleveland seems to have a plan in mind for him. It's unfortunate now that he's, he's landed on IR. I think he still has an opportunity to return later this year. He was playing very well. And, you know, in, in that role, in the in that snap count, that's a valuable thing when you have that specific role in mind. If you don't have that role in mind, what you could do is you end up pigeonholing a guy like that at safety or at linebacker, at a tr- more traditional linebacker spot, and they kind of get overmatched because they're used to being moved around and just allowed to run around with their hair on fire and make plays instead of playing to the discipline of this, the position in the scheme. And that's kind of where I 
I hesitate with those prospects. And it's, it, it's because you have to have a finer fit with those prospects than you do with the more traditional, like a Devin White who was drafted early by Tampa Bay and had a great Super Bowl. You know, that, that's, you know, the difference for me between like traditional linebacker and a guy like JOK. But I, I was cool with him being drafted at, in the 50s. I wouldn't have been cool if he would have been their first round pick. They, instead, they took Greg Newsom at corner and he's playing very well and he's at a premium position. That works out great. You get Greg Newsom in the 20s, you get JOK in the 50s. Now you look kind of like a genius. Yeah, no, I think that's one of the spots, at least, with uh, Cardinals fans have always looked at with, you know, the Cardinals would be that team that would struggle sometimes either on day one or day two, find a player, you know, somewhere in round three, or then see the reverse where you're talking about a potential all-time draft class of Kyler Murray followed with Byron Murphy, who's been kind of coming into his own a bit more as a number one corner. And then you decide to go with an Andy Isabella just because he's fast over a similarly fast DK Metcalf over some of these, you know, injury questions or other areas. So it is just an interesting place that, you know, you look at drafts and prospects, at least as far as, um, you know, you talk all the time about who are some of the big names or the players. And a lot of I think the intrigue ultimately comes down to, um, you know, everyone at least who follows the NFL will know the biggest guys who are like the round ones or the quarterbacks. It's more of just those guys like a JOK who falls to pick 52. I was going to say he hit IR, and then I think Kareem Hunt also I saw was another guy that he had an injury he suffered late in that game, which has been kind of a brutal uh, brutal portion for the Browns who are dealing with just a, a plethora of injuries. And Arizona's no stranger to that. They've uh, lost J.J. Watt for what seems like the season, although he's – not gone into IR yet, and uh, their own quarterback, Kyler Murray, <laughs> talk at the very end about any Niners takes of the pod. Uh, he's kind of dealing with an ankle injury as well, but I want to transition and talk about when it comes to the draft, the biggest thing that always seems to pop up is talking about the quarterbacks. Obviously, the Cardinals don't need one. Uh, I know you'd mentioned a little bit about the Browns who are at the crossroads. I think it's pretty clear to me, at least for the most part, that there's been a huge positive impact that Baker Mayfield has had on the team. It's the area that's seen a lot of fighting on Brown's Twitter has been, you know, when it comes time to pay some of those guys versus moving on, there's, you know, an opportunity cost at least that comes in. Unless it's a Rosen to Kyler type of scenario, it's it's kind of difficult. So uh, can you talk at least a little bit about what we're seeing from some of the quarterbacks this year? I think the biggest thing, at least overall, as far as the, the big draft narrative has been the sudden fall of Spencer Rattler, who is getting pretty much top three hype throughout most of the offseason um, and seeing him be replaced with kind of a you know a couple of different guys, whether it's been Corral or Carson Strong or at least Malik Willis, the Auburn transfer playing at Liberty. Everyone says that this is kind of a weaker quarterback class, and I think it's hard to dispute that, but it's also more in context of you don't have necessarily a Joe Burrow, a Trevor Lawrence, or even you know a, a Kyler Murray at least going number one overall, and that may be slanting things a bit when it comes to this class. Uh, what are you, some of your takeaways that we've had so far from the college football season? So um, the number one quarterback in the class for me is is probably Malik Willis out of Liberty. Uh, he was an Auburn recruit. He's a guy who's of six one, six one and a half, of uh, two twenty to two twenty five, and he's a dynamic a dual threat player. 
And that's what we've seen in recent years in, in the draft. Those guys are starting to um, take the NFL by storm. You know, you've got guys like um, like Kyler, like Lamar Jackson, like Josh Allen, where that added running threat. And, and, and Seth and I talked about this on our show a couple of weeks ago. What you have is it's not just that you can dial up running plays for your quarterback, but, but what it is is the quarterback can buy time, make plays, and it doesn't just buy time for them on a play-by-play basis, but the way they can, can make those plays outside of the structure of the offense buys them time in their evaluation. It allows the team time to fit in guys around those players, and so they don't have to be so fine as passers because the the leap from college to NFL as a passer, reading defenses, going through your progressions, trying to, to stay in those pockets, it's something that if you don't have that mobility, you're you're going to be like Josh Rosen, who he he didn't have that kind of pocket presence, that kind of mobility, escapability to make up for his deficiencies as a passer coming from college to pro. And then the uh, organization becomes very impatient and they move on quickly. Rosen is the most obvious example, but you have others out there. Um, so what, what you have, I think Malik Willis gives you the best combination of he's got a great arm. He's got a, a lot of athleticism. You might say, well, this guy plays at Liberty. It's an FBS independent. They don't play anybody. But he was an Auburn recruit. He was recruited to play at Auburn. He transferred to Liberty, mm-hmm. uh, now playing for Hugh Freeze. He's got a huge matchup with Matt Corral, uh, who would be my number two quarterback who, who plays for Ole Miss. That's coming up on Saturday. So you've got a, a really good matchup of guys that have good arms, good mobility. Matt Corral has kind of been unleashed as a runner. I hope he plays this weekend because he, he got banged up last weekend against Auburn. Um, so we really want to see that uh, that that kind of one-on-one matchup between Malik Willis and Matt Corral. But that's um, those those two guys are at the top of the class for me. What that says to me, though, is this is not a great class because I don't think I would want to draft either one of those guys in, say, the top ten. Uh, it, it, they're just they're good players, uh, and I think they can be successful NFL starters. But they're not the type of players like you've got Kayvon Thibodeau at the top of this draft, a dynamic defensive end, and. It's kind of harkening back to 2017, uh, except that's that's kind of misleading for anybody who has followed me for a long time because I liked Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes, um, but it's the way the NFL thought about them. Like, Miles Garrett was the surefire number one pick, and he was the last one that went number one overall b- before a quarterback. So this year, I think it's Thibodeau uh, going number one, and then you start thinking about quarterbacks. So uh, you mentioned Carson Strong. My problem with him, he doesn't have that mobility. He doesn't have that escapability. He's coming from a Power 5 conference. Uh, I don't think he's been uh, tested uh, by the, the teams that he's played against. And, I, you know, I think he's, he's going to be a liability if he's not pinpoint perfect as a passer early on. I think he's a player somebody might fall in love with because he has, like, these highlight deep balls dropping the buckets um, making the, these great throws down the field, 
But if if he can't do that at the pro level, I think somebody's going to give up on him quickly because he just doesn't have that mobility. And the other guy I want to mention is who is the hot name is Kenny Pickett from Pitt. Yeah. So Kenny Pickett is he's having a fantastic year. He's probably number two, number three. He's at least top five in the Heisman right now. He threw for 500 yards last Mm. weekend, 26 touchdowns, three interceptions. He's got a little bit of mobility. And some people are comparing him to Joe Burrow because he's this senior last uh, final season riser, right? But the problem is Mm. Kenny Pickett is actually three months older than Jalen Hurts. He's he's or he's two months older than Jalen Hurts. He's three months older than Mac Jones. He's uh, he's going to be 24 in June before he ever steps foot on uh, an NFL field as a rookie. The word is he has small hands. If you notice, he plays with gloves on both hands, a la Teddy Bridgewater, and mm-hmm. um, I've just not sold on him as a as a top end starting quarterback prospect. You know, I think somebody is going to. You know, I, I, it already seems evident to to me that NFL teams and scouts are starting to fall in love with this guy. But here you have a guy who, uh, up until this year, his career high in touchdowns was 13. He had uh, his his last two seasons had 13 touchdowns, nine picks. So he is a late riser in a weaker conference. He's got some of these traditional red flags that we talk about with quarterbacks. He's going to enter his rookie year as a 24-year-old, and he's going to have small hands. So I'm not sure that you want to bet big on Kenny Pickett. Yeah, I was going to say, Pickett's the guy that it'll be interesting as far as draft mix go because, like, you're right. He's, I believe from what I check, he's about 10 months older than Kyler Murray is, which is, like, crazy when you think about Murray had to sit out a year as well. And this would be entering year four, whereas Pickett's just a rookie. Uh, that's kind of got a lot of those type of whether it's you know Tom Savage or other players. There's some guys who blossom a bit late that I think they agree with. But as far as from a production standpoint, um, you know, I've very much been. I think we've talked a bit about this where there's some situational how quarterbacks will play. I'm very heavy on guys who are able to start quickly and be able to perform at a high level. And it's really interesting seeing. You know, some of the guys in this class who are producing, but the level of production that you're seeing is like, you know, when when you're comparing it to what goes into like a top 10 quarterback, um, sometimes it's just the whim of the league. You know, seeing Deshaun Watson having, I think it was some 10,000 passing yards when he was graduating after three years of play, Um, seeing Patrick Mahomes be able to break records at Texas Tech. And then Trubisky went at number two. And then yeah. you talk about even with the the Browns, you know, you got Lamar Jackson, you've got, you know, Josh Allen being the prototypical physical size. And, you know, it's Baker Mayfield, who is not like an older quarterback, but he was the guy who went at number one and was kind of the, uh, you know, more of the, the hot pick. And what's been interesting in hindsight is, you know, he's kind of outperformed the likes of Josh Rosen and Sam Darnold to this point. Um, in whatever reason, at least, while – I think at least some of the avenue you can say about Baker is when you're talking about, you know, doesn't have, you know, does Carson Strong have the mobility to be able to extend plays? Does he have that, you know, ability to evade rushers, be able to, you know, escape some of the pass rush? I think that you could say that Baker's athleticism has been higher than some of those guys, but he still was able to get tracked down by, you know, I think it was J.J. Watt on the fumble. 
some of the plays at least he's made you can see like he escaped a sack from Arizona was able to complete the Hail Mayfield at the end of the half right but then he wasn't able to escape necessarily at the same level of the likes of a Rodgers of a Mahomes or uh, even of a Joe Burrow I think to that argument for a lot of ways so it is something I think that does go into the uh, overall evaluation of a quarterback. And Blake, and if I can, I think that it is interesting. If I can mm-hmm, jump in, for it. yeah, I mean, you're hitting a nail on the head. I mean, that's Baker was like a four eight guy, which is just kind of like your baseline um, kind of speed, running speed that you want out of a quarterback. I know Rosen did run that that's around that speed as well, and you know you could look at a Daniel Jones, but then look at at Baker, Daniel Jones on tape in college versus. Rosen like those guys actually did use their feet to escape at times in college right but Rosen never really did he he just kind of sat back there he was kind of a sitting duck if player if the play wasn't developing and then he would he would try to get away late and take the sack so um that it's just one of those things that that I really look at and and if you look at Carson Strong like I would be surprised if he runs uh 4-8 I I think he he's more like a 5 second flat Mm. guy and he's got and he's wearing a knee brace you know from high school yeah that's been one of the things i know is people are saying hey he might be good but check out the knee and usually if you're talking about a knee for a guy multiple years removed from high school yeah it's not good so everybody remember (laughs) that i'm saying this now because people are going to circle back to this in april and say that's why he dropped probably um so you know and, and and with uh you know kenny pickett People are talking about a comparison to Joe Burrow, but I think it's kind of noteworthy that Joe Burrow played his entire rookie year. Uh, his birthday's early December, I think December 10th. So almost his entire rookie year before he turned 24, whereas Pickett's going to be 24 beforehand. It's it's only six months, but that seems to be a significant difference to me. Burrow also kind of had small hands, nine-inch hands versus what Pickett's rumored to have around eight, eight-inch hands. Yeah. So about, you know, both both smaller than average, but uh, Burrow's a, a full size, a full inch bigger. And um, the other thing that I think differentiates the two is Burrow was an Ohio State quarterback and an LSU quarterback. And then when he was at LSU, he won the Heisman and a national championship. You know, Kenny Pickett's playing in the – in the ACC and it's, it's a bit different, you know, Joe Burrow set records playing in the SEC, the hardest, everybody acknowledges that's the hardest conference in college football and Kenny Pickett's playing in the ACC, which a lot of people question their pedigree. If it's not Clemson is any ACC worth its, its salt. And you see it with Wake Forest. They're undefeated this year so far. And I think they checked in at number nine in the uh, first college football playoff rankings. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think at least when it when it comes to the area of athleticism or um, just being able to talk about some of the different players of what goes into it, like a lot of people forget Mahomes wasn't a guy who was the fastest, even when it came to his own. He ended up running a four eight forty. The biggest difference as far as when it comes to, you know, what are measurables, what are tests that really matter? Um, he ended up, I believe at least ran like a, was a sub seven, uh, three cone, which basically puts him into like almost the top, you know, 10 to 12% of all quarterbacks who've ever tested at the combine. 
that year. I think it was Malik Harrison, if I remember correctly, had like a 6.86 and was like one of the fastest three-cone times for linebackers. So if you're talking about a guy who's a quarterback that's able to outrun linebackers as far as like with mobility or being able to bend the edge, that's more of that twitchy athlete that you talk about in the NFL when it comes to the quarterback position. And that's something I think goes into a lot of these type of evals where I think that you can look at a guy like Carson Strong. It's like, yeah, I don't really see some of that quick twitchiness. You can see a little bit of it in, you know, a guy like a corral. And then when other players at least go in like Pickett, that's maybe more of those guys who take a hit can be able to deliver a big pass. And it's just something that's very interesting is that, you know, a lot of times, you know, people talk about the, you know, how high they jump, how far. But to know that some of those things do matter in the NFL because um, there are at least a lot of those different players. And we're going to talk about some of this as we transition to talking about edge rushers. Um, There are some of those players who just don't have some of those skills and don't have the athleticism, rack up sacks in college, and then when they get to the pros, people are like, why do they drop to the third round? And then suddenly they're out of the league within, you know, four or five years. Um, It's just really interesting to be able to see some of these cases. And you're right, and a lot of times we can hear some of these news or know some of these things before they happen. I know with sports betting being legalized now, it's been something that maybe some more of the fans will have a little bit more actual direct action in. But uh, when we go and talk about the edge rushers, this is kind of one of the questions that we've seen. You brought it up earlier. When it comes to having a Kayvon Thibodeau, a guy who you're like, all right, top edge rusher, best player in the class, pretty easy to see that he's one of those guys who may be in the next Bosa or the next Chase Young. When it comes to being a team that is like the Lions or even the Texans that's pretty much devoid of having a quarterback at the spot, it's one of those questions that we've seen at least that popped up again with Jadavian Clowney a few years ago. Do you take that guy who is the better pass rusher over a guy who maybe isn't like the best quarterback overall. And, you know, I know there's, um, I think it was, I think it was, uh, who is it? Um, our buddy over at football game plan, Emery Hunt, he kind of compared um, Malik Willis, who I think is quarterback one as well. He kind of compared him to Justin Fields. I kind of like more of a Donovan McNabb type of comp because I feel like that he uses athleticism in a different way than Fields. I think that there's a lot more of that ability to extend plays where there's some that we saw from fields. And, you know, you got to see a lot of that at Ohio State, but he doesn't have the same numbers that fields was able to really put up as far as for that in the production. And we talk about smaller schools and schedule. It just kind of comes down to, all right, McNabb was like, you know, made a few pro bowls. He was a fine franchise quarterback. He wasn't a guy that you would ever say is probably a top five quarterback in the NFL during his time. Uh, but he still kind of transformed some of the Eagles in a different way. So it's kind of an interesting weight and perspective, I think, of when it comes to making those quarterback decisions, especially because, you know, an 0-7 team like the Lions is probably going to be 0-8 after this week, we'd think. Um, they're going to have to make that type of a call going into the draft, and we've seen a lot of ramifications that come from those types of decisions. Yeah, so so interestingly, the Lions, you know, they have Jared Goff, at quarterback and and Goff was uh, the quarterback uh, pick number one overall the last year, which was 2016, where I felt kind of similarly about the quarterback class as I do this year, um, where I, I didn't feel like there was a quarterback that I really wanted to take in the first round. Um, this year's a little bit different because I think Corral and Willis are are good enough uh, players to take in the first round, kind of um, maybe more like a Ryan Tannehill, like how I felt about a Ryan Tannehill type prospect, which was where I felt he was like a top 20-ish player. 
but um yeah so i i I think if you're going to take quarterback, you want to take one of those two guys early. Um, but do you pass on a, a Kayvon Thibodeau? And I don't think you do. I think this is a very much a, a similar situation to 2017 where Cleveland had the number one pick. And, uh, you know, the rumor was their front office thought hard about taking Mitchell Trubisky at number one and ultimately decided to to go with Miles Garrett, who was kind of the slam dunk. And I think you've got a slam dunk with mm. Kayvon Thibodeau. I mean, he's the number one overall per, uh, recruit in his class. He's done uh, everything he's done on the college football field says that he's living up to that. You know, I, I don't think he's quite on the level of uh, Miles Garrett or the Bosa's or Chase Young as a prospect. But he's right there. Mm-hmm. You know, he's right there with those guys. Um, think of like a. Montez Sweat, who went in the top 10, he's been really good for Washington. And I think Thibodeau is probably a, a, like a notch above Montez Sweat as a prospect. It, it, Sweat was like a freak athlete. He ran, I think he ran a, in the four fours as a defensive end, which was ridiculous. But I'm not sure Thibodeau is going to quite reach those athleticism numbers, but he's going to give you double digit sacks when you get to the pros. And that's what you. That that is a, a key aspect of winning football games. You know, you can if if Detroit had a guy like that this year, even with Jared Goff, I'm not sure they're 0 seven. So, you know, t- take the layups when you're talking about the draft. Take the layups. Detroit's going to have other high picks. They've got another pick later in the first round, I think, because of a trade uh, with yeah. Chicago, and then they they're going to have early picks in every round. So take the layup. Work on your other picks later. Maybe you get uh, maybe you get Thibodeau number one overall. Maybe you get Kenny Pickett later with one of these other picks, your early second rounder or Chicago's pick. So, um, you know, I just think don't get cute with this. And uh, you're you're an zero and seventeen. You're not going to have a turnaround in year one. So, yeah, uh, this edge class I think is much much better than what we saw last year. In, in 2020 when we were kind of questioning like who's even the top edge and we saw it play out in the draft like it was a super weird draft where you had like a skinny receiver and uh, a small receiver going in the top 10 and yeah. <laughs> you know and people were were saying should the Bengals take this uh, offensive lineman or or Jamar Chase who's one of the generational wide receiver prospects that we've seen come down the down, down the line so uh, really weird draft in 2020 is 2021 uh, season. We're starting to normalize. So 2022 draft, I think will be a more normal draft. And uh, Thibodeau just seems like that slam dunk. I don't think you get cute with this. Yeah, it was weird. At least you had five first round quarterbacks and you had like, you had the two Bama prospects who interestingly enough went higher than, you know, the likes of um, was a Henry Ruggs and even the guy from a year before in Jerry Judy and uh, so far, it's kind of been, like you said, getting back to a little bit more normal. And then in other cases, it's kind of a unique class as far as like, you know, the guys who are up there for the most part are all, you know, there's a corner, there's some safety that you'll probably see in a scheme guy like Kyle Hamilton. But then the rest of it is just kind of this edge and offensive line class that you'll have for the most part. It's almost like you're getting back to your bread and butter and then you have to decide, do you take a quarterback to this? And there's been quite a few teams that I think you could argue 
either do need a quarterback or could take one. What's interesting is, you know, the the AFC seems to cycle through all these quarterbacks, whereas the NFC, it's like all the order, older quarterbacks seem to kind of end up there outside of, you know, Trey Lance after the Niners traded up. Um, you've got, you know, teams like, you know, the Texans, obviously, the Lions are in the NFC. You know, you got questions about the Eagles have, you know, possibly two top 10 picks with how the season's gone. The Jets have their pick that's going to go up at least. And, you know, I don't I don't know after this weekend if everyone's ready to anoint Mike White, but it does feel kind of like there's, you know, some of the issues, I think, at least of why this year's rookie quarterback class seems to have had, you know, there's been no one who's really popped in the past couple of years. We've always seen a guy who seems like they've popped a bit as a rookie. I wonder how much of it is just going to poor situations that were maybe worse than we thought. Like, you know, the Jets, the Jags, and the Bears are not known for their quarterback play, if there's anything we can talk about them for the past few years. But I think when it comes down to it, a lot of what the Arizona Cardinals are going to look at is going to be where they'll end up at the end of the season. And the reason we can talk about all of this is because they still have their draft picks, unlike the uh, – the rest of the NFC West. So uh, I was going to say at least uh, when we kind of moves into talking about, you know, classes or stuff as a whole, it really is a strange area of NFL teams and the way that they're treating draft picks in a lot of different ways. Like we just saw the Rams give up two seconds for, you know, nine games or so of Von Miller and a chance to get a Super Bowl after, you know, I think the only player they have left for 2020 is a fifth round pick that they'll probably get rid of, you know, as soon as they get to the new league year and are able to. When it comes to when we're looking at the draft, how much of this change in the NFL is coming down to some teams are just saying, hey, we're going to give up on our picks, get known talent. And how much of it are teams almost hoarding picks in a way where you're like, man, like, you know, the Jets, they got rid of Jamal Adams. Look how terrible he's been. Look at, you know, the Lions having to retool. Is there kind of like an approach at least to that's right or wrong when it's coming to how teams are treating the NFL draft? So I think, first of all, like, a lot of people have been saying the salary cap is a myth for a long time. And I, I don't really think that's it, but it's, it's more about how can you manipulate the salary cap? So, um, you know, you used to talk about the draft as a way to, to, uh, grow a team. Like that was the only way to grow a team because you have the salary cap in place. And then, uh, people started really focusing in on quarterbacks being on the rookie deals. And, and and uh supplementing with draft picks and and uh signing long-term extensions around that and we're kind of seeing the kind of seeing that going into play in Cleveland right now but I think what you're seeing here is there's there's a different there's different ways to bake the cake right um it doesn't have to just be draft picks and I think what you're seeing with you know for the Rams for example they they drafted Jared Goff. They they traded up for him. They drafted him number one. They gave him an extension, and then they bailed on him, and they traded for Matthew Stafford, who they felt was a superior talent. And now they're collecting uh, talent on on the defense. They're building around Matthew Stafford. They're trying to make one run at this. Right? I don't think some teams are really going into it with the mentality that they can build a dynasty. Or if they can't, if they if they want a dynasty, they know that they have to keep it up in different ways. They have to kind of juggle. It's got to be a juggling act. I think New Orleans has been doing this for a long time. They were fortunate enough to have Drew Brees as their quarterback, but they had to find other ways to fit in the pieces around him throughout that 
that time. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's funny. It's kind of like a fantasy football approach where, you know, some years the rookie draft, if you're playing dynasty fantasy league, you're, you're going to just trade, try and trade all your rookie picks. Cause you know, it's not a great class and you're going to try and bring in established talent. Um, I think the other part of it is you look at uh, Tampa Bay last year, what they did where they brought in Brady Gronk, they win a championship and then they managed to restructure everybody's deal to keep that whole team together. So I think it's, it's a combination of things. And what it is, is it's no longer this idea that there's just one way to, to build a, a championship team by accumulating draft picks and building through the draft. People are realizing that they, they just don't always draft that well. We, we think that you can, you know, crack the code and, and just become really good at drafting. But the reality is, even when you pick good players, sometimes they don't pan out because of injuries or off the field issues or things like that. So you, you can, you can get a, uh, you know, miles Garrett or Jamar chase or somebody who, who's billed as generational and actually pans out that way, but that doesn't always happen. So I, I kind of like the approach that the Rams are using because they're saying like, all right, we we're just trying to win the Super Bowl this year. And then we're in uh, in uh, 2022 slash 2023. We're going to try and win the Super Bowl that year, it, and it might mean a different approach. So I like this idea that teams are going to change their approach from year to year. It doesn't always have to be fluid. It doesn't always have to be just like one process. You can change it up, and I think it it can be an effective strategy because right now. You know, you had New England was this dynasty for a long time. They were always getting to the Super Bowl. That's not the case anymore. Tom Brady's 44 years old. There, There is no dynasty. You see it with the Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes isn't carrying that torch. He's not the next Tom Brady. So everything's wide open year to year. So you've got to be able to be nimble, quick on your feet, and uh, and think about new ways to do it every year. It doesn't have to be the same way. Yeah, and I think sort of part of the Cardinals, you know, their success where you look at from I think it was 2016 to 2019, they drafted a day two wide receiver like every single year from that point. And the only one that kind of hurt hit was, you know, Christian Kirk this year. And then they trade a second for DeAndre Hopkins and a third for Rodney Hudson. So it's like thinking that more of um, being able to use and hit on draft picks is important. But, you know, the Cardinals didn't start seeing success until they'd gotten a new quarterback in tow despite trading up for one previously and then were able to kind of add some Pro Bowl talent and try to go in for you know a year while he was you know on a still relatively affordable deal and uh, that's something I think that'll be really interesting to see how you know the year-over-year approach goes especially when you know you got some of these teams that you talk about with Wentz and Goff signing extensions you talk about Dak and it's going to be Murray's going to get paid at least at some point, whether it's this offseason or upcoming. They're going to have to pay a couple of other guys too, at least for the most part. And that's where it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with, you know, their main edge rusher, Chandler Jones. Right now they have essentially, I think at least, um, just him on an expiring deal. Uh, after the five sacks he had in week one against the Titans, um, he's been all right in pressure rate, but it seems like it's definitely dropped off and looked a bit more like the 2020 Chandler Jones that had one sack in four games before. He went out for the season with a bicep injury. Um, I'm kind of curious, at least, as far as when it comes to where Cardinals fans are. There's definitely a gap of, you know, if you give up on good players and they go to other teams, and that can be an issue. We've also seen at least some teams that can hold on to guys a little bit too long or 
uh, make a mistake or two when it comes to a player in age. When it comes to the Cardinals, at least, that's an interesting decision of do you kind of try to keep the band together, bring back Jones maybe on just a one-year deal or a franchise tag versus trying to take a look at this edge class because I got to say the edge class, you know, we talked Thibodeau or what is it, Kevin Thibodeau is the guy at the top who's going to get all the publicity. But it's at least a pretty decent edge class, not just near the top of the first round, but I would argue going all the way down into early round two for the most part, at least. So uh, some of the guys I know you talked about, at least, and this is probably going to be maybe a little bit of perspective, is it seems very unlikely unless the Cardinals decide to, you know, join the rest of the NFC West and trade up. I don't see them being able to get the likes of an Aiden Hutchinson, who's a, a guy who probably is going to be, you know, at the 276.5, more of your you know, defensive end edge, George Karloftis, who, you know, statistically and maybe athletically, <laughs> I think you compared him to saying he might be another Watt brother. No, uh, There's going to be I a couple Bosa. of other edge. I said Bosa brother. Bosa, yeah. Bosa brother. There you go. I was going to say Watt may be a different category, especially when it comes to, you know, J.J. Cardinals sign him right now for seven games. We'll see if he ends up uh, even coming back in time for the playoffs. But you've got a couple of other guys, at least, who are kind of these late firsts. And you think about Chandler Jones went, you know, in the 20s for the most part. And he ended up being, you know, not every late 20 pass rusher turns into the next Chandler Jones or the next TJ Watt. But is it kind of a spot where if you're Arizona, do you look at one of those edge rushers or being able to replace a guy who's aging? Or is there another position of strength that you think they should look at with their round one pick? So it it looks like Arizona is going to be picking late in the first round, which is good uh, for for Arizona fans and good for the team. But um, I think they're, I think they still can look edge rusher because this is a, a deep class. And, and uh, a couple of the players that, that Seth and I talked about were, uh, you know, one was Ohio state defensive end, Zach Harrison. And if you look at the stats, Zach Harrison, he's only got two sacks this year, but uh, if you watch the games, you've seen he's had a couple others wiped out because of defensive holding penalties, or they've been called a tackle for loss because it's a quarterback designed run, something like that. But Zach Harrison, especially a couple weeks ago against Indiana, he really had a fantastic game, and he looked like he was coming into his own. He played well again this this past weekend against Penn State, although I think he got called for a uh, a borderline roughing call during that game, but. What I'll say is, like, uh, you look at Jason Owe from Penn State, uh, Odafe Owe. He went late in the first round to mm-hmm. Baltimore. Um, you look at, at Danielle Hunter for Minnesota. He he ended up falling mm-hmm. out of, I think, into the third round. And these were guys that were elite athletes but weren't super productive in terms of college stats. And they get to the pros and they're all of a sudden they're productive, you know, so look for Zach Harrison. He's I'm not sure he's going to declare Ohio State has had a lot of guys come back for their senior year recently. But if Zach Harrison does declare, he could be a player because of the lack of production unless he catches fire, you know, down the stretch this year against Michigan, Michigan State and maybe in the playoffs. If he kind of maintain status quo he hasn't been super productive but he's an athletic freak he's 6'6 they list him at 272 and uh in high school he ran an 11 second 100 meter so i don't know if, if everybody realizes yeah, how blazing fast, fast. Is, but that's <laughs> you know we're talking about a guy who's going to run like around a sub four six at 270 pounds he's a freak he's a good kid he's a team captain 
And I think he's going to be a more productive pro than he has been as a collegiate. So keep an eye on, on that kid. Uh, he's, he's a really, really good player. Um, I think you're going to find that there are going to be, there's going to be some edge talent. Uh, you know, PFF had Carloftis uh, fall into you guys in a recent mock draft. I don't think that's going to happen. But if he falls down into the 20s, that's a guy you want to trade up for because certainly he's he's an athletic guy. Um, and the other guy, um, David Ojabo, who's coming out of Michigan, he's kind of been overshadowed in, in this draft conversation by Aiden Hutchinson. And Ojabo has come on recently and just been a beast. I think he's ultimately going to play himself out of your range for Cardinals fans because he's already got seven sacks this year. To put that in perspective, Quiddy Pay went in the 20s to the Colts uh, last year out of Michigan, and he never had so much as seven sacks in a full season. And Ojabo has it through eight games. Um, a couple sacks last weekend, a forced fumble that almost turned into a touchdown for Michigan. So uh, another explosive guy. He's listed at 6'5", 250. But uh, if you can maybe get back into the 20s, trade up into that range, you're going to have a great opportunity at a good edge. This is a really good defensive end class compared to last year. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting that you're mentioning, you know, the uh, Ojabo, which I think he's not even in the Draft Network's top 100 players right yet, which I think this article came out in, what was it, like, uh, well, looks like it was updated more recently. So to be getting fair, a little bit of a sneak preview, I think, at least. To, uh, I know, that's the thing. <laughs> it's like the area where you're like, you're, sometimes you're getting too good. It's like, hey, who's going to update this? Oh, yeah, that's right. They're uh, going to ESPN right. or going to, I think, PFF or other places there. So it's interesting that you mention at least Harrison because the name popped up and was familiar and I couldn't remember why and I remember that part of when I looked up one of the bios it was that he was the number one I think at least either edge rusher or the number one recruit I think in his high school senior year and so I think that's kind of one of the areas that we've talked about you talked about before I think on he was the, he was number two uh, on the, the podcast uh, he was number two behind Thibodeau yeah that that's course. right yep that's it so, just right there. So when you talk about we you've talked about the phrase blessed by a big draft, which is kind of like, you know, a good example I always think of is nobody knew who, you know, the Louisville's offensive tackle um, was at least to end up going to the Jets in the top 10 until Daniel Jeremiah said, hey, this guy's playing great. And then suddenly it seems like everyone jumped him or pushed him up in the rankings. And it's a lot of the guys, from what I, at least I know of, they're very familiar with these top guys ever since high school because there's just this kind of either – whether you want to talk about with relationships or family or coaching staff, a lot of the guys at least have come up from the ranks of some form of scouting. And so they, the pool of talent is so small that, you know, people will sometimes, and we kind of see this, I think in Arizona, in the case of Robert Kandichi, he was like the number one recruit out of um, high school in his year goes to Ole Miss. And then he looks like for all intents and purposes, you know, kind of a boom or a bust type of prospect without the, type of production you want a lot more stiffness and then there'd be some of these flash plays that he'd make disrupting and so you look at it and go okay it's a guy that you know probably ends up you know being a guy that if he gets his head on straight maybe he ends up going on the first round maybe it's a second round guy and at the end of the day he ends up you know kind of being a guy that drops out of the NFL and then comes back in but I think a lot of the takes on him as far as being that number one overall high school player followed up even if the on-field didn't match up it was kind of that hype that was there and it'd be interesting to see if a guy like Harrison you know kind of ends up coming on 
and whether or not the stats matter is like not to say the stats don't matter, but we talk about confirming prior takes, and it wouldn't shock me if he's a guy that goes in the first round just due to some of that freak athleticism coming out of high school and a lot of the hype and didn't completely fall off the map when he got to the college level. I think that's something that we've seen happen before in the draft, and it wouldn't shock me if Harrison, a guy from your OSU, ends up being one of those first-round prospects as a result. Yeah, I think think the thing about – one of the things that I started talking about, this was probably like five years ago, and you might remember this, is – you know, you look at the the high school. They started to come out with the high school numbers from the opening back in around 2014, right? And um, I started looking at those numbers and kind of studying those numbers and seeing what kind of players improved on those numbers and what kind of players remained static. And one of the things that you look at is, so if they're already a freak and then they grow, you know, they gain muscle mass, they get into the college uh strength and conditioning program, then they're likely to remain a freak or become more of a freak. If they are, you know, it's some, you know, fair amount of athleticism, but then you see them go to college and they grow a great deal. They put on 20, 30 pounds of muscle and uh, they're in a renowned strength and training uh, program, something like in Ohio state, Alabama, Michigan, um, Iowa, Notre Dame, just to name uh, several then you can kind of project that they're going to improve on that athleticism. But if they get to college and, and you know, they have, you know, kind of borderline athleticism and their bodies don't change, they remain, you know, the same height weight four years later, then you start to predict that you can start to safely predict that they are not going to make that jump athletically. And I think that's something that people are more and more, they're starting to catch on to um, you, it used to be when I talk about high school athleticism numbers, people would just shoot me down. They've just completely dismissed me out of hand. And I would say, wait, hear me out. Let me explain what I'm talking about. And I think more and more that's starting to happen with a guy like Zach Harrison, he's coming in. He was a freak athlete as a high school kid. He was a big guy as high school. He's six, five, two thirty five. You know, he was, he was running those sprints at six five two thirty five is kind of like what dk metcalf was was trying to do when he ran that 100 meters last summer now you've got him in a renowned strength and conditioning program at ohio state and he's being coached up by larry johnson a, a known uh excellent defensive line coach so maybe the production doesn't have to be doesn't have to be bosa level we're not talking we're not saying draft Zach Harrison at number two overall. We're saying this guy could be like Odafe Owe, go late in the first round and really uh, exceed what he's done as a collegian. And I think the formula is there. You know, you've got the excellent athleticism, great size, good strength and conditioning program, added muscle. Everything's there for this guy to be a star or at least a, a formidable player at the NFL level. You just have to do a bit of projection, and that's what this is all about. And 
analyst who would have picked any other position for the Cardinals to take outside of the first round besides cornerback. They're coming into the year with Byron Murphy having played in the slot for the previous season full-time and got toasted his rookie year at least, had a, a rough rookie season. He had Robert Alford coming off of two years of not playing, and then they had a rookie in Marco Wilson who beats out uh, Patriots legend Malcolm Butler who reportedly lost a step, had a lot of tackles last year, which, you know, when you see a high level of tackles for a corner, either they're playing nothing but zone or they're just getting tossed all the time and having to be a step behind for the most part. With how Wilson at least has played reasonably well, I think it does play into the fact of as a guy who was a high recruit out of high school, you know, I think at least the uh, some crazy 40-inch vertical despite having ACL tears and had passed all of the different um, – you know, measurable tests as far as when it comes to explosiveness goes in the fourth round after suffering an ACL tear kind of seems to play a bit tentatively and seems like maybe in some cases he, we've seen it with some players. It takes him a year to get over that ACL. He's kind of come and been able to do a fine job for Arizona. Uh, he's probably had a better season to date than the veteran Drake Kirkpatrick did last year in the same defense. So I'm not saying that Arizona, maybe it's a spot where you look at them and say maybe you do add another talent to the rest of that corner group, but uh, maybe not. Maybe isn't the most pressing need just from a contract situation. But let's talk about some of the corners just because this is kind of the class where if you are going to go and draft a cornerback, like I was not a fan of the Cardinals wanting to go after a corner. Everyone talked about it for most of the offseason. You felt like neither of the top two guys were falling and now you've got the other first round cornerback, I believe, in um oh gosh, this is gonna be that the guy went to the Titans at least for that one. Uh, has gone to IR for the year. That was not necessarily a strong cornerback class, despite the fact that two guys went top ten. What about this year's cornerback class? Because you got some big names at least you got, you know, Jay Stingley obviously is the huge name out of LSU. Um, the next kind of great LSU defensive back is how he's been advertised since he stepped on the field at Florida. Uh, you've also got Andrew Booth with Clemson, but there's a couple of other guys I think who would probably have first round grades at least. Is that something that you know Arizona could look at for the most part of just trying to bolster you know their secondary uh, as far as the defensive side versus you know trying to attack the edge rush? Yeah, so you've got uh, Derek Stingley Jr. I mean, he's he's injured, he's out for the year, but he's going to be uh, an exceptional tester when it comes to the com- combine. He's going to run sub 4-4. Four, four. He's going to have a 40-inch vertical plus, and uh, he's got good size. So there's no way he's he's not making it to you guys. You know, he's not getting to the – he's <laughs> not going to get to Arizona. Um, top 10 guy, if not top 5. Yeah, and, and – uh, you know, he had six, remember, he had six interceptions as a freshman, as a true freshman, and uh, I think he was the defense back of the year in the conference. Kyrie Elam for Florida, another guy probably not going to make it to you. And then you've, then I think you start to see guys that could start to fall. You've got uh, McDuffie from from uh, Washington. He could He could drift into that range, I think. Andrew Booth is a player that you mentioned, and I know PFF didn't even have him in their in their top five coming in, but Draftnik's are really high on him, so I think it's kind of a mixed bag um, with Clemson corners because you don't typically see a lot of uh, on the ball production in terms of pass breakups, interceptions out of their corners. So sometimes they tend to fall farther than Draftnik's want to uh, make it out that they're going to. So Booth. 
maybe that is a, a possibility for you. I, I really think, uh, you know, just kind of, you know, holding my finger up to the wind that he's going to go earlier, but you never, you never really know. Um, I know draft Knicks are starting to really rank Ahmad Garner, sauce Garner from Cincinnati into the top 10. I'm skeptical of that. He's a power. He's a group of five prospect and to not take away from him. He's a very good player, but I think that uh, a lot of times NFL teams with a group of five prospect, you almost have to have one team fall in love with you for someone to take a chance early. And Seth and I talked about this on the, on our podcast a couple of weeks ago on Patreon. But um, if you look down the list of group of five prospects that go in the first, second round each year, it's uh, it's a not very many players, relatively speaking, and the success rate's not very good. Right. So if you're going to take a, a group of five player, you have to be pretty sure on him. And um, Gardner is, like I said, really good player. He is the type of player I think you could take a chance on late in the first round and, and kind of justify that. But I don't think um, where he's being mocked right now, which is in some cases top 10, is very accurate. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about uh, – we're going to talk about this guy later in the week. I guess I'm going to spoil this for um, this is going to be on our Patreon <laughs> for the original draft breakdown podcast because we're going to talk about some players who are highly touted before this season who haven't really or we're not really sure where they, where we are on them at this point in the season. And, that, and one of them, seven banks from Ohio State. He was he's an, another guy who's an athletic testing freak. A four-four corner, six-one, two hundred five pounds, but he hasn't played that much this year. He's only played a few games. He was kind of uh, there were rumors that he was in the doghouse. I think it turned out that he was actually injured, and they were keeping it quiet. And he's just now getting back onto the field. If Banks plays out the end of this year like he did the end of last year, he's going to move back into that late first round, early second round conversation because he's he's that big and he's that fast so it's it's a good corner class um i haven't got that deep into it yet because it, it's one of those positions where it's easier to evaluate later yeah after the season is over um it's way easier to evaluate like the line of scrimmage yeah. and the skill players mm-hmm. during the season no but, question um, yeah i think there's there are some good skill players um kyler gordon from washington's another one that people are high on too yeah, I was going to say part of I brought that up is not just the need, but also uh, the latest pro football focus mock did mock a corner to Arizona. They mocked Martin Emerson, at least, at the pick 32, which is kind of interesting as he's more of his own guy, whereas the Cardinals, you know, it's kind of interesting. They seem to run a lot more press man, and that seems to have been their bread and butter. But, you know, if you kind of add a lot of as they did up front, they've been able to run a little bit more zone uh, as a result, um, it is also interesting when, like, you know, you're mentioning a uh, group of five, which I think is like uh, the from the Cincinnati Bearcats in the AAC. It's not going to be one of those type of, you know, main conferences like the SEC or even the Pac-12. Um, and that's what's interesting is, like you mentioned that, and the Cardinals kind of been a team that's known for going outside of the box and highly drafting. You know, they took Andy Isabella in the second round. <laughs> they went and got a guy from Tulsa last year. So that is one right. of those interesting facets of where you bring out that name, at least. And if it sticks, it's like, okay, why do we keep seeing this corner who's, you know, mocked to Arizona at the end of the first year, and we have never heard of the guy before. Sometimes that's teams can have different tendencies. So 
Uh, I wanted to at least kind of just shift into the last uh, couple of things with prospects. The pass catchers and kind of blockers, you know, after corner seemed like it was a spot. It's like, all right, maybe Arizona doesn't have a desperate need at corner. You got Max Williams on an expiring deal. Maybe tight end is one of those spots where you're, if you lose one or two of your wide receivers next year, maybe you pick up a tight end and try to get a pass catcher and a red zone mismatch. Maybe that's the case you go doing the draft. Then, of course, after Max Williams gets hurt, the Cardinals go out, trade a fifth for a 30-year-old Zach Ertz, who's turning 31 before the year is up, and seem to be indicating that they're fine with trying to see if they can bring him back. It's interesting as far as for just the way that Kingsbury He's used his tight ends a little bit more like these either H-backs or kind of replace what a normal fullback would do in the offense um, while still keeping things you know, pretty much spread out and utilizing RPOs. That may not be as much of a need for the most part as far as tight end, and it doesn't seem like there's that many guys. You know, I doubt there's going to be anyone who's a Kyle Pitts in this past year, at least for the most part, who's essentially a wide receiver that plays the tight end position which is going to really hurt them during contract terms, but that's besides the point. Uh, the biggest thing I think when it comes to it is, hey, if Arizona is going to lose a pass catcher to, you got two Ohio State wide receivers that are there as well as a few other guys that are in there. Is wide receiver a spot that Arizona should even look at at this point considering? I, I think that you could probably make an argument for some of it depending on what goes on with Kirk and Green and seeing how the wide receiver two look, but I felt like that they addressed that last year by at least getting Rondell Moore and being able to maybe add a guy later makes sense. But uh, if you want to talk at least about if there's anything else that pops as far as the tight end spot or at least go over for fans who are still curious, just what we can expect from those Ohio State uh, wide receivers. Because you got to think Olave and Wilson are probably going to be wide receiver one and wide receiver two in this class. I just don't know if they're going to be top 10 picks is all in this in this year. Yeah, I, I, I'll address the wide receivers first. Like, I think that um, for me, the top three wide receivers in the draft are Garrett Wilson, Olave, and Drake London from USC. And London just, he's just uh, got fractures. Hurt. Yeah, he got hurt and he's out for the year. It's a fracture. Um, it should be healed up in plenty of time for him to contribute as a rookie. He's, Along the same lines uh, as a prospect of, of like Mike Evans, but I don't think he's he's never shown that he could be the deep threat that Mike Evans showed when he had Johnny Manziel, and that might be a quarterback thing. But think think of a guy who can win jump balls, who can um, you know kind of box out mm-hmm. as a receiver, who can win contested catches, and Drake London's really good after the catch too. Um, with the with Wilson and Olave, like Olave's going to be the faster of the two. He's going to be the better deep threat. He's not going to give you as much yards after the catch because he he's going to go down easier on contact. Yeah. And he also had some fumble issues last year. Garrett Wilson to me is the is the one A to Olave's one B on Ohio State because Garrett Wilson's a more reliable guy when it comes to contested catches and yards after the catch situations. So they're both really good players. They're uh, the the thing is they're both kind of built like Calvin Ridley. You know they're about mm-hmm. six foot six one, one eighty five, one hundred ninety pounds. Neither one of these guys is very big. Yeah, they're 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 kind of slight uh, built. One of the reasons Olave said he came back was to add some strength, and uh, he may have, but it doesn't. It's not really noticeable in like yep. his his build. He still looks like a really slim guy. But you saw it the other day, you know, uh, in last weekend's win over Penn State. He only caught one pass, but it was a 38-yard touchdown. He got loose deep. 
uh, Garrett Wilson was making more of the intermediate plays for them. And then they've got another uh, guy in, in Smith and Jigba who's going to be, we'll talk about him next year. You know, he's a true sophomore. But um, I, don't, I don't think Arizona needs to focus on any of these guys. These guys are, are going to go earlier, I think, than, than the Cardinals pick. You know, if mm-hmm. any of the guys are available late, I think it might be Olave. He's, he's a player I could see fall into the late first round or early second round. Um, and it's not because he's, he's uh, you know, older or not productive or any of those things. It's he's about, he and Wilson are about the same age. It's just that Olave to me looks more like a number two receiver <laughs> at the next level. And um, that's not to take away from him. I think he's been fantastic. He's a big time. He's, he's on the verge of, of breaking Ohio state school records as a fourth year senior. So um, if, you, if you're looking at tight end though, I think this is not a, a, uh, a great class where you're going to have a first round tight end. So if if you, you know, can re up Ertz or if you bring back Ertz on a short term kind of deal, then you've got some tight ends that are intriguing. Um, I know PFF really likes Trey McBride who is a, a tight end out of Colorado State. Again, you're talking about a group of five guy. He's a he's I think he's either a senior or a redshirt senior. Interesting player because he has true NFL size and he's a good blocker too. I'm not sure how fast he is. Um, and and tight ends, we know that they take a couple of years to come along. So you're not gonna get instant Love gratification. The sleepers. Love the sleepers. You guys have got Max Williams after he you know, kind of bounced around for a little bit and then he shows up and he, he becomes a key player for you. Um, you got to be patient with these tight ends. Guy I like is Jalen Weidemeyer out of Texas A&M. He started a little bit slow, but last year he was a uh, key red zone target for them. He's a good player. I think he suffered a little bit this year because of their quarterback injury. And now he's starting to get a rapport with the new quarterback, Calzada. A guy I'd look at is uh, Jeremy Ruckert. I'll plug another Ohio State guy. He he is uh, consistently, he's like their third, he was their third best receiver last year. Now he's fourth, but he's shown over and over that he's a red zone threat. And if you watched the Penn State game last weekend, he was uh, he had three catches for over 50 yards. He's very athletic. He's a good blocker. Everybody that comes out of Ohio State is going to know how to block. And that's something where I think that stunts the growth of other players coming out of college. They have to gain trust as blockers. Ohio State players are, it, it's ingrained in them early that they have to be good blockers so they're not going to see the field. So that's one of the reasons why, not just because I'm an OSU alum, but why I like Ohio State prospects. You have less margin of error there. So Rutgers, a guy I would look at in, in uh, let's say, late day two, early day three at this point. And then um, a player who you might get into day three, like fourth, fifth round is Peyton Hendershot from Indiana. Yeah. So Peyton Hendershot has first career hundred yard game last week, albeit in a loss to, to Maryland had two touchdowns. He uh, he's a, another big guy with NFL size. He's another big 10 player who knows how to block and he gets loose as a receiver and he's playing with now the third string quarterback, third or fourth string. I'm not even sure at this point. Indiana is beat up. They're terrible, but he still got loose for 100 yards last week. 
Um, guy I really like. He he scored a touchdown against Ohio State. I think it was their only touchdown. So Hendershot's a guy I'd look for on day three. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I know the uh, looking a lot of times you'll see like the Mackey Award, which is something that you know Jalen Weidermeyer did qualify for that last year. He's obviously not going to beat out Kyle Pitts, and it'll be interesting to see with Max Williams coming off of what seems to be a major injury with Ertz getting up there, uh, just what the approach in the off season is going to be. Uh, I, I do think at least when it comes to Arizona, the way that they utilize it, you almost look at the guy who's going to be a wide receiver, and then you look at the guy who's like their straight up blocker who you can kind of you know hit on a flare out make a guy miss and rumble down the field like uh, Williams was doing so well on yards after the catch whereas Zach Ertz is almost the opposite as far as you know you want to get him with plenty of space in front of him um, but he's going to be able to make that catch and then score you know like on a you know maybe a 10 yard touchdown or be able to go up in the end zone the one guy at least that's interesting from a receiver aspect like you said is and I don't think that either of the Ohio State guys would fit kind of what Arizona's offense has been structured to be um, because with a lot of what they have at least is they want to have these bigger large guys who are uh, on the outside who can kind of go up and either make contested catches or be able to be a big threat you kind of think of you know you you get your small Rondale Moores on the inside at the slot and then you got your bigger receivers uh, outside or guys who can go up for the catch if AJ Green doesn't come back or if the Cardinals look at you know the amount as far as contract or the age Jalen Burks is very interesting because he kind of ends up being that guy who can beat over the top 6'3 225 Uh, and he also lines up specifically on the right side of the formation for the Razorbacks uh, which is kind of funny when you talk and joke about how the Cardinals receivers don't move around maybe that's one of the avenues you could go a guy who might be there later is going to be probably below some of the other players and kind of fit some of that need I don't think that they're going to go receiver in the first and that kind of brings us to the end point which of course is the spot where I think Arizona would invest I'm talking about the O-line and the D-line we've gone a little bit of talking about with some of the edge guys at least for the most part but when it comes to the Cardinals you look at what they've invested you know you talked about how Zach Allen at least played well they've had struggles with guys really staying on the field they've had Richard Lawrence was a fourth round pick they got 330-pound lucky foe to another fourth-rounder. Cardinals really probably would be in a different spot if they had had Derek Brown there at pick number eight. Maybe just kind of have that plugged in. Um, they went and signed J.J. Watt to a two-year deal just trying to get that interior defensive lineman. And when it comes to protecting your quarterback and being able to invest in the offensive line with a couple contracts up, I could see them going interior offensive or defensive line. As we kind of wrap up at least this draft part of the podcast, what's going to be some of those players on the O-line and D-line that you know you could look at late first? You don't think the Cardinals are going to get an Evan Neal, obviously, and I highly doubt that there's going to be a player like, um, I think at least if you had to pick an interior guy in um, – uh, not the other, not Evan Neal, but the other Neal. Um, DeMarvin Leal, that's who it is, Leal. Those guys are probably going to be well done in the top 15, but who are some other guys that Arizona could look at, at least in the interior, uh, late in the first, or uh, maybe if they decided to trade up a bit? Yeah, um, the best interior linemen are probably going to be, well, see, I think Evan Neal is ultimately going to be move to uh, right tackle or interior line myself because he's he's such a humongous uh, player and and you don't see players that big have typically have good enough feet to stay at left tackle in the NFL but they can thrive at right tackle or 
as guards. So we'll see what happens with him. Mm-hmm. Um, an example, I think he's going to be more athletic than Orlando Brown, but that's an or- example of what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. Where I was thinking of Leonard Davis. Yeah. Cardinals, I think, at least drafted him. He played left tackle, played right tackle, and then becomes like an all-pro level once he got moved to right guard. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of the idea, but I still I think you're right. He's not going to fall to you guys. Um, you know, the best interior lineman in the draft is Tyler Linderbaum for for Iowa, who's a center, but he's like a pure center because he is under 300 pounds. He's he's a brute and he's a wrestler and he's a great athlete, but he's just not very big. He's kind of maxed out. And you see that with Iowa offensive linemen, but you also see that they can be very successful in the pros. Uh, even guys who go late in the draft or undrafted tend to have sticking power from those uh, the Iowa offensive line. I think Linderbaum right. is actually going to fall farther than people think because he's so undersized. Mm-hmm. So maybe he could get down to the Cardinals, uh, at least into a range where they might trade up. You've got Kendrick Green from Texas A&M. He's played guard. He's played tackle. Ultimately, I think he's going to be best suited to play guard. Um a guy that I'm not super high on, but I think he's going to end up on the interior is uh, the Washington tackle Jackson Kirkland, who we were seeing mm. mocked early in the first round in the top 15 as a left tackle. But I don't think he's going to hold up there athletically. And he got beat earlier this season by Aiden Hutchinson and some of the other Michigan defenders. And I think you kind of if you watch that game, you kind of see what I'm talking about, where he's going to be better suited moving inside. So those are, are some players that I would look at. If you want to look at, at players maybe in the second, I, I would even say third round or later with this guy, but uh, Thayer Mumford for Ohio State who played left tackle. He's settled in at left guard this year so that uh, Nicholas Petit Freer could move out to the left tackle. Mumford is actually very much better suited to play inside as well, and he's playing very well there. He's He got banged up and got – uh, subbed out earlier in the year, but I think he's back and healthy. And uh, he's going to test like a guard, and he's got good size. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a player that you can look at uh, maybe a little bit later. If you, You're not going to want to use your first-round pick on a guard. Maybe you could use your third-round pick on one. Yeah, it'll be something to look at for the most part. And then on the D tackle, this is something you alluded to in your last podcast, which is I think Jordan Davis, you know, the question comes down to – when you're taking a guy who's like, you know, that size, some 330 pounds, you either get a Vita Vea that ends up being this guy who, like, you know, teams don't even try to run on the box because they just can't, or you end up with this guy who ends up being, like, injured a lot, his lower body injuries, and then ends up out of the either out of the league before their second contract or just has trouble staying on the field. I like to think of, um, I think you guys compared it with Danny Shelton, a guy who didn't have maybe the necessary high impact that some people expected, but also when you talk about the NFL and they're able to rotate in and be able to take some snaps off for that one, you know, you're able to get enough of an impact from that guy when you're able to stop the run that it forces teams, you know, into these third and long type situations, which is essentially where Arizona plays at their best because they're able to just press guys at the line, bring these, uh, you know, these exotic blitzes for the most part, those athletic linebackers and safeties to, you know, try to basically force turnovers. And it's worked for them so far throughout the season. Um, Part of that was with JJ Watt being that guy at the defensive tackle side who, you know, at some, what is it like 280, 290 pounds, 
um, being able to at least stop that. They haven't gotten that same production out of Jordan Phillips, who, you know, is kind of signed out of free agency at that 330 pounds, is only just now actually seeing the field for the Cardinals. How much of that, as far as the defensive tackle side, is something at least where you should avoid those type of guys this year, Arizona? And who would be a few others? Or is this kind of a spot where if Davis ends up being one of those guys that you want to try to man at the nose, you hope that you can be able to benefit from by just essentially having a defense that people can't run on? I think with the big guys, you have to watch the conditioning when when you watch the uh, the college tape because most of the time the college teams are they're going to keep their best players on the field all the time if they can, and it could be at the expense of them, you know, being not conditioned well enough or not, you know, not having the energy level. In the NFL, we see a lot more rotation. But one of the things I, I remember with Danny Shelton is, and, and this is what we noted on our on our show when I talked to Seth, Shelton was playing 80% of the snaps at Washington, but then when he got to the pros, he, he just didn't have the conditioning. He didn't have the gas to play more than like 30, 35, 40% of the snaps. So that's a big, yeah. that's a big problem um, if you're drafting a guy in the top 15 and the top 10. So what... Yeah. What I'll look at is the Clemson defensive linemen that have come out recently, Christian Wilkins and Dexter Lawrence, right? Mm-hmm. Both of those guys are playing over 60% of the snaps as pros. And if you can get Jordan Davis playing over 60% of the snaps as pros, then uh, he becomes a better uh, a, a better draft value. You know, if, if you only have him penciled in for 30% because – you know, you're just playing him as a, you know, almost a pure run stopper. That's just not going to work. He's got to give you some pass rush capability. So I look at Jordan Davis. He's he's a huge disruptor, and he's a linchpin of the best defense in college football. So I'm not going to sit here and say that he's not a valuable player. But I think you have to, you have to proceed with caution, and uh, you have to understand that a a lot of the Georgia players that have come out in recent years haven't really tested that well uh, or up to the expectation that we might have had as uh, draft evaluators. So that's something to look out for. But if if Davis can come out and give you what, you know, what Christian Wilkins or what Dexter Lawrence is giving you or more or better, which I think is what people expect, then he's going to be a really valuable pick. There's no way uh, I don't think he's going to make it to Arizona in any in any respect because I think some team is going to fall in love with this guy who just caves in sides of the offensive line. But remember, the NFL likes to move offensive tackles from college to offensive guard. So when you're watching offensive guards, even in the SEC, you know that a lot of those guys are never going to see the light of day in the pros. So keep that in mind, even though, uh, even though Jordan Davis is caving in, a, you know, two guards or a center and a guard from one of these SEC teams, there's a good chance that neither one of those players is NFL caliber. So I just want people to really understand what I'm talking about there. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that uh, these interior linemen are not important or that, that they're, uh, you know, being overrated, but it's just that you don't really have a good, uh, you don't really necessarily have a good gauge when you're watching certain matchups on their college tape. 
Yeah, definitely agree, at least for that one. I feel like, at least for me, the the guy who I feel like I would love that won't be there would be Texas A&M's Kenyon Green. You mentioned him as far as that. Otherwise, you know, the whole dream scenario, I think, for Arizona would be, you know, if you could find a way to be able to trade up for George Karloftis, you know, pay heed to the rest of the NFC West for the most part, at least, and just give up some picks, at least, would be one interesting avenue for the most part but i did want at least as we kind of wrap up at least you know the cardinals are playing the niners on sunday this is kind of going to be an interesting spot because kyler murray he's not a guarantee to play the game um niners are getting some guys back cardinals are getting some guys back it's on the road for the most part it really feels like in a lot of different ways that no one really knows what to make of this niners team um i'm kind of in one of those avenues at least of hoping that arizona is able to you know, if they can win, great. If they end up dropping a game, as long as they're able to have the quarterback health, I think is important. I've got a score of 21-17 for the Niners. Do you got any thoughts as we wrap up here on the RTB pod on anything to expect on the game? Especially since, you know, if Colt McCoy ends up being the quarterback who starts, Cleveland fans are very acquainted with him and his uh, ability and production. And he's still in the league at 34 years old, which is, you know, a big credit to those backup quarterbacks being able just to kind of sign those deals year after year of being able to just learn a playbook and, you know, go in if needed. Yeah, Colt McCoy has settled into the role I kind of envisioned for him as I watched him play in Cleveland when uh, some of my fellow Cleveland fans were insisting that he should be the future, that we, we didn't give him, a, you know, a fair shake. That was always my my joke is that, uh, you know, when I talk to other Cleveland fans and say, we've got to get another quarterback and say, they didn't give him a fair shake. Like, he's a third-round pick. Right. Like he, he was at the time, that was a good pick because and, and he won a couple of good games early on, mm-hmm. but he was never the answer um, as a backup. I think he's very good. I think it's uh, you're in a comfortable position because you've got a backup who's kind of equal to the guy who's probably going to start for the Niners, Jimmy Garoppolo. Yeah. I also never really bought into, even though, um, when I saw him at the senior bowl back in 2014, there were people insisting that he was a first round pick. And I'm just like, yeah, the guy played from Eastern Illinois, you know, he's actually, he played his high school ball about uh, 20 minutes away from where I live right now. So uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, I mean, props to him. He's made a killing in his career earnings, but I just don't think he's a very good NFL starter. I think he'd be a fine NFL backup along the lines of what McCoy is giving Arizona and, and what he's been throughout his career. The proof's in the pudding. Uh, San Francisco went and they drafted Trey Lance three overall. What I don't understand is why Kyle Shanahan is just reluctant to to move on to the quarterback that he supposedly handpicked. And Kyle Shanahan is just a curious guy to me because he's he was billed as this offensive genius, and yet we see time and time again you know, Dante Pettis, he's an early pick. He gets put in the doghouse. Brandon Ayuk, put in the doghouse. Uh, Trey Lance, seemingly there's no trust there. Uh, mm-hmm. Trey Sermon, he doesn't trust him over the sixth-round pick, Elijah Mitchell, who, by the way, is playing fantastic. He looks lights out. Yeah. Uh, but like We're all fully blaming everything on Kyle, at least, for that one. No, <laughs> because no. Mitchell looks great. But, but it, it's just a, it just seems like a curious process, what San Francisco is rolling out week in and week out. They, they just don't seem to have uh, any kind of continuity. And you have Shanahan, who's had that one really good year where they got to the Super Bowl, and everything else has been sub-500. 
I think that Arizona is going to win this game. Um, you know, I think you're make, you're keeping it close because it's a road game for them, and you're not sure about Kyler. If Kyler Murray plays, I think the Cardinals win this game by two scores. I just don't think that uh, – I think there's a lot going on in San Francisco, and I don't think a lot of it's good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the key is going to be – for me, the key is stopping Elijah Mitchell because he's a guy who's – who's put up 100-yard games. He's got four sub-4-4 four, four speed when he gets into the open field. So keep that guy contained. Make Garoppolo throw on you this weekend. And I think that Arizona is going to be successful, even if Kyler's a little bit dinged up, because they, they, the Cardinals just have a better team right now. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of with Colt McCoy last year, people forget that he came in and won a game uh, with the Giants up against a Seahawks team that was basically a playoff team last year. Uh, he did it through, um, you know, being able to make a couple of throws, but not turning the ball over um, was really big. And what's interesting, at least for me, is the, you know, you mentioned at least just kind of being able to fill in in that backup role, having the better team. Uh, McCoy, at least from what I saw in the preseason, he just looks a lot more comfortable and confident in this Cliff Kingsbury air raid scheme. There was like a play that he ran on the goal line that I laughed like when I was sitting people wondered why I was laughing. I said, that's the same play I saw them run with Mahomes against Texas Tech. And that's the same play that I, you know, saw Colt McCoy run back in the day when he was at Texas. It was just this area of these Texas quarterbacks that was interesting. So I can agree with you as long as they're, yeah. I think that's like McCoy's kind of bread and butter to, to yeah. play in that kind of scheme. And I think he's really comfortable to when he doesn't have to be the guy, when not everything is riding on him. So, I mean, if McCoy mm-hmm. has to play, uh, maybe chip, <laughs> give give a chip to the left tackle when Nick Bosa is out there. But otherwise, I don't <laughs> think you have to make it. Like, yeah. I'm not saying that like Arizona is the same with McCoy or, versus Murray, but I don't think he's – I think he's a very good backup a very capable backup with Cliff Kingsbury's system. Yeah, absolutely, at least for that. They do also have a third string, more of a running quarterback. Perhaps they may end up seeing a little bit of their uh, Chris Strebler, the leveler, maybe active if they're going to be on a fourth and one, want to have some sort of a rushing threat. It is curious with, you know, just to bring up at least, not to end with Kyle Shanahan. I mean, this is a Cardinals podcast, but when you have Brandon Ayuk reportedly ranked ahead of like at least at least two of the three of Ruggs, Judy, and Lamb. And speaking of Ruggs, you know, uh, live podcasting stuff, apparently the Raiders have officially released him. That's what it looks like after his incident today. So you know that it's, like, not only is it bad, it's like, you know, there's there's a lot that's going on as far as for that with his case. It reminds me of of the Dante Stallworth case um, Mm -hmm. years back when he was with Cleveland, except this, uh, unfortunately, this seems much worse. Yeah, with a fatality involved. Yeah, and Stallworth did too, but... Uh, what you had with Stallworth was uh, I, he struck a guy who was crossing the street uh, illegally as well and kind of came out of nowhere. And Stallworth was intoxicated, but not by all reports, not really driving erratically. This is a little bit different where Ruggs was driving at high speeds and just slammed his car into the back of, yeah. of, of a vehicle. And it's really, really tragic. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it seems like he's going to probably do some jail time. It's, it's really bad. Yeah. No, it's just one of those areas. At least it's awful. At least as far as there are mistakes that you can make and there's mistakes that are avoided for that. So, um, to end on a different note, you're, you know, we're, uh, you know, not on just a total downer, but we're talking with Jimmy Garoppolo and I'll always remember him 
because he's the reason why Gil Brandt actually blocked me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the reason why is because it came down to that infamous area where it said, oh, you know, like Teddy Bridgewater's uh, hands measured in nine inches. I don't know about that. And I pulled up and said, hey, he said, hey, said, here's a tweet from Gil Brandt, Jimmy Garoppolo, nine inch hands. That'll pass the bar. I said, what's the difference, Gil? And it was like <laughs> immediately after that, I was blocked just because it pointed out that there was a, some sort of reason why he was doubting nine inch Teddy two gloves, saying that maybe a little small, but was fully in favor of <laughs> Jimmy Garoppolo at the same measurement, saying that more than passed the test. So we got to always an eye remember how, that. We got to keep an eye on how Gil uh, rates Kenny Pickett at this point then. <laughs> oh, gosh. Woo. Yep. Oh, absolutely for that. I'll wrap it up first in the ROTB pod. Why don't you go ahead and plug at least some of what the work that you guys have been doing over there as far as with your written articles, with your Patreon. Uh, I've gotten a lot of use, obviously, out of the articles. It's fun to be able to have a tune in and keep up to note on college football, uh, especially with being able to get an advance for not just some of these players for the draft, but just kind of the state of college football as a whole. It is in, in a lot of different ways. Um, it and the NFL are completely interlinked. And so I think there's a lot of benefit that you can get from, you know, the work that you guys are doing over there. If you want to drop the, uh, you know, drop the plugs at least or have a little bit of the, you know, whether you want to call it advertisement or not for your podcast, this is your time right here, Justin. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, Player FM at uh, the Draft Breakdown Podcast that uh, you can just search us there and find us there. Um, the we're the original Draft Breakdown <laughs> Podcast. I'm so, thank you, Blake. Um, so the original Draft Breakdown Podcast on all those sites. And uh, you can subscribe to us. Please do and give us a five-star review. It helps us. And uh, on Patreon, we're the original Draft Breakdown Podcast as well. And uh, for two bucks a month, you can subscribe and you get a free bon- or you get a bonus episode every week. And uh, that's usually about... 45 minutes to an hour long and we talk about we always preview the saturday games we give you uh, a little bit more in depth on the draft side of things than we do on the free show and then uh, i'm also writing an article every monday i call it box score scouting but what it is is i'm kind of analyzing the uh the top most interesting box score lines of the weekend but those are also guys that i'm watching too so i have a little bit of analysis that goes with that um, that's kind of in our what we call the generational tier. So that's four bucks a month. And uh, that actually is going to start ramping up as we get into December and into the real draft season. So we're going to be doing more for that generational side as we get into things um, as this season winds down. And as Seth and I start uh, as our schedules start to open up. So we're doing a lot of different things. That's, uh, you know, three different things a week you can find from us. And uh, at various costs, whether you want to pay no money, two bucks or four bucks a month, it's all uh, we're, we're putting it all out there. And we're talking about so many players. Uh, if you've been listening to us since uh, we came back back last March, we've talked about hundreds of players from 2021 to 2022 and on. So, um, you know, I think it's a I think it's a good resource. I'm glad that that Blake likes it. And uh, I'm really happy. Thank you for having me on tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Man, it's always great to be able to talk football. Uh, Always great to be able to talk draft. Thanks again for joining. As always, you can follow Revenge of the Birds at ROTB Pod on Twitter, at revengeofthebirds.com, and anywhere where your podcasts are located, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, one more. Uh, have this episode up. We've got one more episode airing later. We'll have the uh, Kyle Posey from uh, Niners Nation will be on. We kind of split shows every year for so often, go on each other's podcasts. 
uh, with the two divisional rivals. Should be a good time. You can look for that dropping Friday morning as well. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone, and have a good one.